Our Bible reading for today is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 to 38, and you can refer to, the book, to your Bible on the seat or on the screen. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you, they will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against these people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When these sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful of your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. 
for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him in the temple. Me, if we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be here on this uh, very momentous and historic morning. Um, but I was going to start my sermon on a slightly less momentous note. I was going to tell you just about what I have for lunch. Um, this week, I've had the same lunch every day: brown rice, tuna, some nuts, and an apple. That's become the Jamie special. I used to eat all kinds of concoctions for lunch, but life's gotten a bit hectic lately with two little kids, not a lot of sleep, and I've realized that in that minor chaos, I take comfort in that same simple lunch every day. It's my way of creating the illusion of control. So there's something I'm sure you really wanted to know about me. How do you respond when life gets hectic? Are you someone who takes comfort in planning everything out? Do you just try not to think about it? Or do you embrace the chaos? Now, my lunch routine in a slightly hectic period is trivial. Uh, it's not the end of the world. How do you respond, though, to those heavier situations? You know, when grief hits... Sometimes we don't know how we'll respond until we respond. How would you respond when it is the end of the world? Do you take the 1980s REM approach and just say, I feel fine, revel in the chaos? Do you panic? Do you hide? Do you follow Will Smith in I Am Legend and just try and find a solution? It's a question that's come up a bit over the last couple of years. How do you respond when it feels like it's the end of the world? But it's not a new question. It's exactly what Jesus' followers unwittingly stumbled into in verse 5 of today's chapter. With that seemingly innocent remark about how nice the temple in Jerusalem looks. If we take a step back, though, we've got to wonder, have these disciples been asleep for the last couple of chapters? In chapter 19, Jesus walked into Jerusalem as its king, and he's hailed as God's chosen savior by the crowds. But it's a moment of sadness for Jesus, because he knows he's walking into rejection. God himself is walking into his temple only to face the intellectual mockery of the Sadducees and the leaders who want to see him dead. God turned up and the people missed it. And all that can follow is judgment. No wonder Jesus takes this comment as a chance to teach about the end of the world. Because his followers will soon find themselves in a world of chaos, no more temple and the final judgment of God pressing in. In other words, 
the very world in which we live today. And in the midst of that, Jesus promises his followers there is solid ground to stand on. There is a way to respond with courage and calm, not fear or complacency. Even when you're not there yet, when the holy city lies in ruin, even at the very end of the world, there is a safe place to stand. So let's start at point one in your leaflets, when you're not there yet. By verse 7, the disciples get that they're talking about more than nice stones and decorative gifts. A destroyed temple means the place that God promised to meet people would be no more. So they ask, teacher, when will these things happen? The first thing Jesus wants his followers to realize about the end of the world is that it's not the end yet. Have a look with me at verse 8. He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Jesus knows that his followers are about to experience life without his physical presence. Like us, they'll be living in those last days before the end. And in those days, Jesus' followers are at risk of getting sucked in by would-be messiahs. Because there's going to be scary headlines daily. And in that climate of uncertainty, there will come smooth talkers saying, follow me and you'll be okay. And you might just wish they were right. But they're pretenders. There'll be pretenders. And verse 12, there'll be persecutors. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Don't be alarmed if you get treated badly for being a Christian, says Jesus. They're just treating you as they treated me first. And verses 12 to 19 are like a prequel to Luke's second book, Acts, where Jesus' followers get chased out of towns, chucked into jails, hauled before kings and courts, and time and again, the risen Jesus gives his once sleepy-headed disciples all they need to respond with the kind of razor-sharp wisdom that Jesus himself showed in last week's passage. And so that time of trouble ends up being a time where the good news about Jesus spreads like wildfire right down to us today. When you face persecutors, says Jesus, don't panic, don't hide. It's not the end of the world. Not yet. Those persecutors need to hear your testimony about me. I don't know about you, but I find that intimidating to imagine being called to explain your faith to the powers that be. My little taste of that uh, one time was when my, one of my grumpy music lecturers stopped the class, pointed to me and asked me why I was wearing a jumper that said something about Jesus. Those heart-racing moments, they're always a possibility. And Jesus has a track record of bringing his disciples through them in a way that honours him. 
But in our culture here, at least at the moment, those kind of standing before the authorities moments are sporadic and really quite tolerant. If you're anything like me, what hits hardest isn't the opposition out there. It's verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. It's not the adrenaline-filled moment before a governor. It's the heartbreak of being hated by people you love. That's pain Jesus knew very well. Friends and family have the greatest power to hurt us, don't they? Because it's their opinions that we care about. Are you up for that? As we embark on this new chapter of mission next week, rejection is a very real part of what we face. We're doing it because the whole world needs to hear the testimony about Jesus before it's all over, because people will be saved by that message. But are you willing for loved ones to be concerned about you, maybe even resentful of how much you're invested in church because of Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'd only be up for that if I was convinced that Jesus is true and that he knows what's best for me. And even then it still keeps me up at night sometimes. Which is why we need verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. If Jesus' followers are going to stand these last days before the end, they need to know their life is protected. They won't miss out on anything. They'll hear their family begging them to stop putting Jesus first. They'll see friends drifting away because this Christian stuff has changed you. But they know they'll be okay because Jesus has brought them into the unbreakable bonds of life with God as Father and brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. They may even be put to death but not a hair on their head will be hurt. That's how you win life, by standing with Jesus. As we've talked about this pattern of pretenders, persecutors, and protection, it sounds a lot like life with Jesus today, doesn't it? And looking back, you can think of Christians at every point in history experiencing what Jesus describes here. Wars, claims that the end is near, trouble. And Jesus' call to every generation until he returns is be alert but not alarmed. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. In light of that, it's strange that Christians can get so invested in conversations about how certain current events relate to the end of the world. On one level, that's completely right. Jesus has promised that disastrous and confusing events will come before the end. And yet Jesus tells us quite clearly that we don't know exactly when the end will be. I think Jesus warns us at this point 
don't get too fascinated. We're not promised that it's COVID or Donald Trump's rise or fall, depending on where you sit politically, that marks the final siren. They're just the turbulent events of our time. All we know is that we're not there yet. So if you know that sense of fascination, of trying to map out the end, remember Jesus tells us what we need to know. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. And could it be that that desire to kind of schedule out the end is more about trying to control something that is actually way beyond us? When that next terrible headline comes, be sad, but not shocked. And remember that Jesus has given us these days so that more people might hear about him before he comes to bring his children home safe and sound. There is a way to respond with calm confidence. Even point two, when the holy city lies in ruin. If there ever was an event to signal that the world is on its last legs, it's this. Let's read from verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Like Jesus himself, his his first followers were Jewish. So this talk of their temple and its city, this center of Jewish spiritual life, the thought of its destruction is really end of the world as we know it type stuff. Listen to some words from Psalm 48 about Jerusalem and its temple. This is what it says. Walk about Zion, Jerusalem, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. Jerusalem was God's chosen city. It was such a special place that to talk of Jerusalem was almost to talk of God. Not quite, but almost. Because Jerusalem was the place where God told people that he, the uncontainable creator, would live with people. And here's Jesus saying that this place is about to be torn apart. It's not just a warning about a coming conflict. This is God saying that he will not be making himself available in the same way. In other words, this is judgment day for Jerusalem, where they will taste the worst punishment of all, God withdrawing from their midst and giving people to their own devices. And perhaps the saddest part of all is that this has happened before. God's been warning his people since way back in Deuteronomy 28, If they refuse to listen to him, other nations will come and siege their towns and make life awful. And after many years of pleading with them, God announced in places like Jeremiah 25 that Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people exiled, and they were. And last year we looked at the book of Ezra together and we saw God move heaven and earth to bring his people back to Jerusalem after 70 punishing years of exile. And here we are again. This time, God's people haven't just rejected God's prophets. God's own son has turned up to the temple and the people want him dead. And that's not okay. 
And so Jesus warns his followers, judgment is coming on this place. Get out if you can. History records that in AD 70, just a few decades after Jesus spoke these words, Jerusalem was sieged and flattened by the Roman army led by its future emperor Titus. It was a brutal time to be man, woman or child in that place. Luke's first readers were around kind of just before and just after that time. You can imagine them wondering, if Jerusalem is so important to Christianity, why is it flattened today? And why did the religious elite of that place reject their own Messiah? Luke makes it very clear. The destruction of the temple was a tragedy, but it was not an accident. God's own son walked in and the gatekeepers were so threatened that they killed him. The God-forsakenness of the temple was no failure. It confirms the last days before the final judgment have begun. And in those days, there is a new way to meet with God for Jew and Gentile alike. Now, this announcement of the holy city's ruin is sobering for us on a couple of fronts. First, it tells us that the end of the world has already come near. Jerusalem tasted the dawn of Judgment Day. And second, and perhaps more challenging, it tells us in no uncertain terms that God will not tolerate people rejecting him forever. He is deeply patient. Just think about how many chances he gave Jerusalem before this moment. And even then, it's not the end of the story. He is patient, but God is no doormat. As I walk around these picturesque streets, it's tempting to think, a final judgment? Really? Everything seems fine. Maybe you've had the thought, I want to get serious about my relationship with God, but there's just too much going on at the moment. Remember AD 70. God drew a line in the sand. He's given us these last days now as a gift with the one purpose that we might find forgiveness, shelter, and purpose in Jesus. Too many in Jerusalem miss their chance. Don't miss yours. Because there is a safe place to stand, even point three, when it's the end of the world. Given all that the temple's destruction means, it's logical that Jesus now goes on to talk about the end of the world. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. I was working on this sermon um, here at the RSL a few days ago, and someone from one of the groups came in, and uh, he was setting up for his group, and we got chatting a bit, and I mentioned that I was working on a sermon, and he kind of jokingly said, ooh, a fire and brimstone sermon, hey? <laughs> I kind of just had to go, well... <laughs> This sermon is ultimately about finding safety in Jesus. But safety from what? 
Again, Jesus is drawing on Old Testament pictures of God's wrath. Images of things completely out of our control. And they should scare us. When was the last time you were hit by a force that was just completely beyond you? Uh, I'm not a great swimmer. And for me, I think of times when I've gone boogie boarding with friends who are much fitter than me at Boomer Beach. And those waves that looked really fun on the way in are suddenly towering over me. And I'm dumped under once, come up for breath. There's another wave already. The noise of water in your ears. I start thinking, I know you're meant to stay calm in these kind of situations, but it'd really only take a couple more big waves and I would be in some kind of trouble here. We like to think that we can build our own little worlds with our neatly arranged lawns and nice photos. But in the face of a roaring and tossing sea, we're nothing. We like to think that we can arrange our lives so we don't really need God. But faced with the shaking of earthquakes, when the next wave is towering over our heads, toppling our little worlds like sandcastles, How could we be so arrogant? Sooner or later, that's going to be painfully obvious. Proud people passing out from fear, stars exploding in the sky, and nothing, nothing we can do. That's coming as sure as the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And it all swells to a peak in verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Daniel chapter 7 describes a Son of Man emerging from the chaos of the world and coming on the clouds into the very presence of God to receive all authority as God's appointed King and Judge of all. The Son of Man is also Jesus' favorite nickname for himself because Jesus is the Judge Come into our midst. If you want proof of that, just look at his empty tomb. We cringe at the idea of fire and brimstone, don't we? And fair enough, like that kind of preaching can sometimes be very condemning, which really misses something important about what Jesus is about. And yet, could it be that part of our cringe is because we naturally hate the idea that God might judge the world. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everyone here is okay with the idea of end of the world judgment. But perhaps you're here today just a bit scared of what might happen if God were to hold you accountable for how you've lived in his world. Or perhaps you're a bit worried about what that judgment might mean for others around you. And it would be nice just to escape that thought. The world as we know it just doesn't let us land there though. The conflict, the disasters, it's all evidence that something is deeply wrong between people and God. It's a world of wannabe messiahs. It's kind of all of us at our core, right? We want to be kings and queens of our own little worlds. And so we've got this world of rebel Christs just fighting each other. And because God is good, he's not going to let that go on forever. 
the time is coming where it won't matter what you eat for lunch, everyone will be subject to the utter chaos of judgment. And if that's a bit terrifying, then you get it. Whether there's a safe place to stand at the end of the world all depends on what kind of judge the Son of Man is. So is this a good passage for our last Sunday together like this? The end of the world as we know it, I guess you could say. It's an exciting, unsettling Sunday and I'm definitely finding it a bit sad. Of course, it's tongue-in-cheek to compare this to the end of the world. But I'm not joking when I say we are heading out this, from this Sunday into a world that's on its last legs. We don't know when that final trumpet will sound, but the shadows are getting longer, the breakers are getting stronger, the Son of Man is coming as judge. I really like our church the way it is, and I'd kind of like to just keep honing things so that we're all really happy here. But what better use of these last days than to go and help the masses in our city be ready to meet Jesus on that day. Because point four, there is a safe place to stand. I've been puzzling a bit over verse 32 this week. Jesus says that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. If Jesus is talking both about the imminent events of AD 70 and the end of all history at his return... How were we meant to understand that that generation of disciples saw it all? Uh, There are a few ways to answer that question. Um, The least likely answer, though, is that Jesus was simply wrong here or maybe exaggerating. Because Luke could have just not included verse 32 in his gospel. Or those who passed it on later could have just snuck it out. But all the evidence is that verse 32 has uncontroversially been preserved down to this day. So we've got to ask, what did that generation see? I think the best answer is that Jesus' disciples and their contemporaries saw everything Jesus described either entirely or beginning to happen, as Jesus alludes to in verse 28. And from what we know from Acts and other historical sources, they definitely saw their share of persecution and worldwide chaos. Uh, Many would have been around to see Jerusalem fall. But what about the end of the world and the Son of Man coming in the clouds? For that, we need to look at what Luke says about these things in the rest of his book and Acts. Acts 1 records that Jesus' first followers spent time with him after his bodily resurrection and they watched as he ascended to his father's right hand and a cloud hid him from their sight and they heard the promise that he would return in the same way. So in Daniel's terms, they saw the Son of Man coming in a cloud to his father's presence to receive all authority as judge of the world. In Luke 22, knowing full well that his sacrificial death death was imminent, Jesus said this at his trial. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. 
So for Jesus, the cross is essential to him being the glorious and powerful judge of the world. The Son of Man's coronation took place in a garbage dump around AD 33 with a crown made out of thorns. And on that day, he didn't come to dish out judgment. But Luke records that it was a judgment day. Because as Jesus hung there dying, the heavens went haywire. The sun stopped shining at at noon, plunging the land into the darkness of God's wrath. Jesus was right. That generation saw Judgment Day touching their world. And that's the mind-blowing thing about the kind of judge that Jesus is. The Son of Man, who will return at the end of history has faced God's judgment himself, though completely innocent. He did it on behalf of anyone who wants to stand behind him at the end of the world. So stand behind the Son of Man. And you can face the end of the world knowing for sure that your judgment day has been and gone. Back around AD 33, that's when your sins were paid for in full. That's what the criminal hanging next to Jesus did. He recognized that Jesus must be the king. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This man who had no way to make up for his sins before the Son of Man, all he could do is ask. And Jesus' answer is decisive. Today you will be with me in paradise. Judgment Day has touched our world. One day it will drench it when the Son of Man returns in glory. But there is one safe place to stand behind the Son of Man. If that's true, then there are two implications uh, for followers of Jesus to think about today. First, we can stand tall. As unsettling as Jesus' words are, have a look at what he says in verse 28. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We can lift up our heads because the chaos of life is only evidence that Jesus' return is getting closer. It's like the purple bloom of a jacaranda telling us it's summertime. Our redemption is so close. No more goodbyes, no more opposition because the time for witnessing will be over. What could courage in the face of fear now look like practically for you? My minor suggestion is next time you're scratching your head with a Christian sister or brother about you know, the latest development in the COVID saga or the housing market or whatever the scary headline is, remind them about their redemption. Isn't it a mess? Thank God that Jesus is going to come back. Second implication, if it's true that there's one safe place to stand, then I need to ask, how is my heart going? Because my heart is prone to wander in these final days, prone to look for security and control and escape. So Jesus lands on verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. 
Luke 21 can be hard to understand at points, but the application is crystal clear. Watch your hearts. It strikes me how Jesus can list off drunkenness and the cares of life in the same sentence because I reckon it's easy for someone who's really worried about doing life right now to judge the person who gets drunk and the person who drinks as an escape can look down on the person who's uptight and controlling about the outcomes of life. But they're two equally unhelpful responses to the troubled times we live in. The worries of the world making money, the house, finding a partner, giving the best to our kids, these things can weigh as heavy as a blinding hangover. And they can be just as distracting from the reality that we are living between the Son of Man's coronation and his return as judge. So how's your heart going at the moment? Is there anything slowing you down from feeling and knowing and making decisions around the fact that this world's on its last legs and there's one safe place to stand? Where are you tempted to invest for your security other than Jesus? Is it the anxious busyness of work and family life? Is it the escape of light entertainment and comfort? If we were convinced that Jesus' return really was the next big thing on God's agenda, what would we do less of? What would we do more of? As we start filling up our calendars for the year and start those habits that we won't get to reevaluate till next summer, Jesus gives us some great clarity about what you can build your life on. Verse 33 Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Jobs will come and go. Houses will rise and fall. Politicians will be in and out. Even churches will go through their ups and downs. But at the end of the day, there's Jesus, the judge who stood in our place. Jesus, you are the savior we stand behind. Jesus, while we wait for your return, your words are the ground we stand on. Amen.